Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Conversations with SYLE. Today I'm joined with three special guests, all of whom are here to talk about their journey to qualifying as an advocate in Scotland. My first guest is Antonia Welsh, who called to the bar in 2020 following a bar traineeship. Antonia is practising with Westwater Advocates and specialises in family law. My second guest is Chris Miller. He's an advocate at Themis Advocates, also called in 2020. He has a mixed practice area, including criminal, civil and public law. And my final guest is also an advocate at Themis Advocates. It's Robert Hovey, again called in 2020 and practices primarily in reparation. So the question that I usually start asking everybody, um, I ask this at the start of every podcast, is did you always know that you wanted to be a lawyer? So Antonia, maybe we'll start with you. I didn't know that I always wanted to be a lawyer. Um, so I only started my law degree when my kids were two and that was, they're now eight, so six years ago. Um, and so it's been quite a fast track to the bar. Um, I initially thought that I would quite like to be a teacher. So I have a history degree, which I really enjoyed. And then I thought about teaching abroad. So I taught, I taught English as a foreign language um, in Thailand and in Mexico. And then sort of decided after working in a school here that that maybe really wasn't the path for me. And so decided to go back to university and see what I could achieve. Wow, that's an interesting career path. And um, what about yourself, Chris? Um, I did always know that I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, after I finished high school, I went straight to university. And once I finished university, um, did my traineeship as a solicitor and afterwards went to the bar so it was always a, a long-term plan for me perfect uh, and what about you robert uh, same for me i originally wanted to be a lawyer in the army legal services so my initial career was to join the army and then become a lawyer there however i saw uh, a different career path available and uh, and chose the civilian route what about being an advocate? Did you all know that that was the type of sort of legal sector that you wanted to go into? Um, I always um, knew that I wanted to be involved in courtroom litigation. That was the, the kind of first and foremost things that I wanted to do with my career. Um, so advocacy and the advocate profession was always on my mind from early days at university. But I would say that it was practicing as a trainee solicitor. I found that um, court-based work is what enjoyed the most as well as more technical legal problems um, and as well as the academic side of law and it's for that reason that I decided um, towards the end of my traineeship that it was the time to pursue a career as an advocate. I was part of the law clinic at the Strathclyde University and in my second year of university I did a four-day employment tribunal on my own and that was my first time ever in a courtroom and I think from that experience I thought I love that adrenaline rush of being here. I, I just I loved looking into a problem and I just really wanted to see how can I get to the bar as soon as possible. Uh, for me it was all about getting the wig. Uh, and it, it seemed to be the cheapest option to get a new hairdo. Um, no, I'm I'm in a similar boat to Chris. I did always want to go to the bar um, when I was going through the traineeship that reinforced uh, my decision that it was courtroom litigation. Um, big thing for me while doing traineeship is uh, time, having the time to really analyse a problem, 
to read cases, ensure that you are um, fully up to date um, in your practice area. And that was something that all comes from being self-employed. So if anything, my desire to go to the bar just strengthened throughout the traineeship. I think we're all sitting here nodding as litigators, understanding that predicament. Um, Chris and Robert, you both did conventional traineeships, if you like. Can you tell us about those? Yes, um, well, I decided um, when I was at university, um, one of the good things about um, Strathclyde University, their diploma in legal practice was very, um, very hands on and practical based as it should be. Um, and I found that because of that, I definitely wanted to pursue a traineeship in litigation. So I did train with a firm which specialised in personal injury litigation, as well as some insurance law matters. And um, what I found over the course of my traineeship was a great experience. Uh, I really enjoyed working every day in that job. The main thing, and I would echo what Rob said, is that I felt that due to the obligations to report back to clients all the time, having to manage their expectations, having to do more of the administrative tasks involved in the legal profession, I didn't have as much time to like, fully develop my knowledge and understanding of the law in certain areas. And furthermore, when things would arise, such as like a proof or some kind of opposed motion hearing, I didn't quite have the time that I would have liked to put in the maximum amount of effort and legal research into the areas. And again, that compounded my decision that what I wanted to be focusing on was courtroom advocacy and allowing myself to be in a position where I could put the absolute maximum effort into doing this to the best of my ability. And what about you, Robert? Uh, it was a conventional traineeship as well. Um, uh, same with Chris, I always wanted to be on my feet. Uh, so my traineeship was with a uh, very, very large uh, global, well, it was a very large Scottish now global firm uh, specialising in personal injury, medical negligence and regulatory crime. It was two years, absolutely excellent traineeship. However, if a bar traineeship, which I think is where we're heading, was available to me, I would have taken that. That brings us very nicely on to my next question. Um, Antonia, you had a slightly different path than these two um, to calling to the bar. You underwent a bar traineeship. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I did. Um, I think before we talk about the bar traineeship, I think the reason why I sought out that option was because I shadowed Amber Galbraith as part of the mini doubling programme. So that really put the idea in my head and I got to meet other people and I got to hear about different options while I was there. And it was one of one of the people that I bumped into at faculty that had said, you know, this there are other ways to come here and uh, had told me about the bar traineeship option and what that is is only get into a firm for a year and your traineeship is really focused on litigation so you you would avoid seats that are, are not sort of court-based work and do you feel like you were at any disadvantage having only done a year in practice as a trainee compared to your um fellow devils that had done you know a two-year traineeship and some of them who had been working in private practice or in-house for some time I, I never felt at a, a disadvantage and I, I would probably echo what Rob has been saying about the, the sort of take you back to the very basics and sort of build you up from there. So in some ways it was perhaps an advantage to have only been in a firm for a short period of time because I had less bad habits to unlearn. And I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have probably never heard of a bar traineeship. Um, I think they were probably a thing back when sheriffs were trainees um, and less so now. How would you um, 
what advice would you give to people that are maybe thinking oh I should look into doing a bar traineeship I think one piece of advice I'd give anyone thinking about a bar traineeship is that you need to be a little bit more focused on your own learning so there are there are certain things that other trainees will have handed to them or 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 be encouraged to do and, and one of the things that I found was the ethics course that trainees normally get was just not an option in my traineeship it was never offered to me and I had to go and seek that out on my own so you really need to be a bit more in control of your own learning and a bit more proactive about seeking out experience and I take it it's also the case of being a bit more proactive and seeking out the bar traineeship in general they're not things that are necessarily advertised on job boards or or um on social media and things it's probably something that you have to be quite active and going and approaching firms would that be fair that's absolutely correct so i think you need to uh, you will not find an advertisement for a bar traineeship you need to go to firms and you need to maybe explain to them what it is first of all um and then you need to convince them that it's worth their time taking you on I think it's fair to say that you've all had different backgrounds and journeys, um, but you will have had similar experiences as you made the decision to become an advocate. Um, it's probably fair to say that the faculty's regulations for entrance are not exactly light reading. Um, and so it might be helpful for people who aren't aware of the process, if you um, perhaps, Chris, could explain the process from making that decision up to the point where you start devilling. Okay, so the first thing which I had to do um, when I was preparing to go to the bar is you have to contact the Dean's Secretariat, who are effectively in charge with the administrative side of becoming an advocate. A lot of this is overseen by the clerk of faculty. Now, what the Dean's Secretariat will advise you on are how to go about the process of becoming an advocate. And it first involves effectively um, checks on your qualifications to date, that you've completed X amount of training, that um, you have certain, um, uh, obviously, your degrees and then certain subjects at university. Now, these vary university to university and ultimately, depending on what subjects you have sat, um, you may or may not be exempt from certain exams at the faculty. Now, as well as this, you then need to present a petition um, to the Court of Session, um, which I understand they then delegate the training, etc., of the advocates back to the faculty. Um, and that is when you would eventually ultimately set the examinations in legal scholarship. And eventually, once you have passed them, you would ultimately commence your pupillage to become an advocate. Now, as I say, everyone's experience would be slightly different. Um, I know that most um, universities, as I say, um, will have certain subjects on offer and some of them will be elective subjects. Um, I think the main three usually which the faculty look for in addition to the core subjects are um, Roman law, international private law and um, jurisprudence. There are other subjects as well, which may or may not meet the faculty's criteria. So it really is very much a case by case basis and they will tell you what exams you need to sit in order to come to the bar. The key thing is there are um, two um, key examinations which everyone has to sit regardless of what subjects they studied at university. And they are examinations in evidence and examinations in practice and procedure. Now, um, as I say, when you matriculate to become an advocate and your petition is presented, they will talk you through, through this. Um, you will be provided then with its example past papers, etc. And ultimately, um, they will tell you what they are looking for effectively in these exams. 
Now, once you've passed the exams, that's the big sigh of relief, so to speak, because um, I think everyone um, before the exams are spending months and months of studying and ultimately um, the, their future is effectively dependent upon these. Um, but the good news is once they're out of the way, you begin the process of trying to find your devil masters and ultimately preparing to undertake your period of deviling. You've spoken there about choosing your devil masters, which is, I understand it, a pretty important part of your pre-deviling um, checklist, I suppose, if you will. Um, Robert, how do you go about sourcing and choosing your devil master? Well, the, the faculty do provide you with um, a list of uh, advocates that are eligible to be devil masters, um, and are willing to, to be devil masters. However, by the time you get that list, um, it may be the case that many uh, advocates have already been taken up. So although it is an incredibly important stage, it's surprisingly informal. So in terms of choosing, uh, practice area is a, a big key for me. So I very much was interested in regulatory crime, personal injury and med neg. So ultimately, I steered very much towards uh, compass chambers when I was looking at devil masters. Um, and I, I think from speaking to many colleagues that called this year, it was very much uh, the same style. So if you're interested in practice areas, you look up those stables. And the chances are throughout your traineeship, you will have also encountered many, many advocates just through instructing them um, as a trainee. Once you've found a number of people that you're interested in, again, it is informal. You just be bold send them an email. Um, Dear Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, uh, apologies for emailing you directly. I'd be grateful to meet for a coffee. Um, and that is it. Uh, it's as straightforward as that. You email, can we meet for a coffee? Can we meet for a bite to eat? Um, as a trainee, it's a great way to get free lunches. Um, I didn't pay for a lunch for about two weeks. It's fantastic. You get to know your potential devil master, find out the type of work they're interested in. That, in reality, may vary from the profile that you have read on the faculty's website. They may no longer do that kind of work. It may have changed. Find out if the work and the exposure they will be able to give you is what you require. Uh, so, for example, I came from a firm who very much predominantly, well, predominantly was defender work. Um, I needed contacts in pursuer firms. So my choice of devil master was someone who did a lot of pursuer work. Um, so that's another thought. It's also whether you get on with them. Um, that's a, a big, big key point. You are going to spend a lot of time with these people. Um, if you do get on with someone, you ask them to be your devil master, uh, they will accept. Um, but my advice would be to do that as early as possible. Don't wait until faculty give you a list of names. Um, look up the stable websites, be bold and contact people directly. So talking about devil masters, um, once you have been brave, been bold, sorted your devil masters out, sat your exams, handed in your notice to your firm, you start the period of being a devil, which I think for a lot of people seems like a strange word. Um, it's only really in legal spheres that nobody bats an eyelid if you say, yes, I'm a devil. Um, but there's a number of stages um, of deviling, as I understand it. And that starts off with the foundation course. Can you explain to those who might not know anything about it, what the foundation course is and what your experience of it was? 
Um, my experience was was very positive. The um, the foundation course is um, run by an advocate, Neil McKenzie QC, who took charge of the, the direct, as a director of training. I think it was about two or three years ago. And the way Neil has structured the course, <clears throat> it involves um, considerable, basically workshops in case analysis and advocacy within which you will analyse problems and you will discuss with experienced members of the bar how you would go about presenting them in court, what the best techniques are for doing so, and then ultimately through a system of um, discussing it together and um, observing how they would do it, you would then get a chance to do it yourself and receive feedback on it so as to develop your advocacy skills. Now, this very much um, would alternate between each week and each day even um, certain days we may have a criminal defence case, certain days we may have a judicial review case, other days we might be um, involved in a personal injury matter. And it really was um, an intensive full-on course um, for us to develop our practical skills um, and as continuous to, uh, in, in the sense that although it is a five-week course at the beginning of devilling, there are um, further courses throughout the year which we require to attend so as to ensure we're keeping up these skills. Uh, as well as um, seeing how our respective devil masters are doing it in practice. How do you find the foundation course if you haven't necessarily had experience in, say, criminal work, going into that with people, uh, other devils who might have solely done criminal work for the last 20 years? How does that work for you? And I think there was a lot of the issues that we touched upon in deviling that I'd never seen before. But I think Justice Chris was explaining you know you start off in a classroom environment where they go through this is how you break it down this is how we look at a problem you know this is this is the facts you want to be thinking about this is the law you want to be thinking about so you're you're sort of every aspect of the case is explained to you how you should be looking at this problem so by the time you get to actually stand up on your feet you know exactly what you should be looking for you know exactly what you should be saying you're not sort of thrown off the edge of a cliff, you know. And Robert, Chris had alluded to there being other assessments um, and other training that was carried out through the period of devilling. What can you tell us about that? Well, you, you have your five weeks, I'm trying now to remember, you have your five week foundation course, which does go by in uh, a blink of an eye. And the one thing I will touch on with the foundation course is it really doesn't make a difference whether your experience is entirely civil or entirely criminal. Well, I think everyone is on the same footing. There are challenges that you overcome. Uh, the five weeks you do a bit of civil, you do a bit of criminal, and it's very, very intensely focused on case analysis and building from the work up. You are then set loose for a period of deviling with your devil masters. You then return in February and May for two short courses, which are sort of more intensely focused. And if I remember correctly, I think there was a um, at least a week spent on appellate work. We had, um, I think, some family work as well. So they're a little bit more focused on particular practice areas. Um, and then you do have opportunities uh, very early on um, to appear in front of a senator, um, which when they mention it at week one, sounds like a terrifying experience. Um, and anyone uh, starting Devlin will be told that after five weeks, you will be a completely different person. Uh, I can completely vouch for that. Um, both Chris and I took part in the Mike Jones um, advocacy competition, uh, which was only a month or two into deviling. And I can honestly say when I, when I stood up in that court, which was absolutely packed, 
uh, I think it was in front of Lady Wise, you are so much more confident than when you walk through the door of the McKenzie building on day one. Going then to the period of being let loose, as you put it, Robert, um, you go off to the Devil Masters that you have chosen beforehand. Um, What's that experience like? Being let loose um, with your Devil Mistress or Devil Masters is, is... It's incredibly exciting to be able to work on real cases, um, just to see the ins and outs of how someone else runs a consultation, what sort of things are they picking out, why are they looking at that? And it's also an opportunity for you to ask, you know, every silly question that comes into your head. Um, and, and without ever feeling like you're being judged at all, you know, you can ask them anything. And, and I've never found anyone that's not been more than helpful. Um, but it's also it's fabulous just to see them in court as well, to see how they, you know, all the preparation beforehand and then to see how it all pans out. And this is why we were looking at this thing or this is why we were, we were asking that expert that question. And then just to see that um, happen in front of you. So it's very exciting. And how much hands on work are you directly involved in as opposed to sort of the shadowing side of things? My devil mistress or well, I have three devil mistresses, sorry, um, and all of them gave me work to do and would then either you know correct it or give me some feedback on it or they would provide me with an example of what they had done and it gives you that sort of comparison okay this is things i need to think about but you you were given you would be drafting a summons you would be drafting defenses you would be you know putting putting together an opinion and what about you robert how did you find your period of dabbling um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I had um, so probably the starting point is you, you need to have two devil masters or mistresses. One is civil, which is your main one, and uh, one is criminal, who you need to spend at least uh, I think it's two weeks, but you can spend longer. Um, I had three. Uh, I, had a, I had a second civil. I know some people had up to four, maybe even five. That's entirely up to you. How many devil masters you want, of how many different practice areas. And um, you, you arrange your timetable with them. It's very much you're left to your own devices. So you have your principal devil master, who you are the civil person that you will spend the majority of the time with. And then you liaise with them to find time with your criminal devil master or other civil devil masters or mistresses. Uh, mine was great. I didn't get much written work to do. Um, and that, that said, um, whatever I did do uh, for him did end up being used um, and you, you pray that he's proofread it before uh, it gets put in front of a judge. Probably the, the best part is the when you're a trainee, when you're in a PTM, a sort of pre-trial meeting, and counsel go off to their respective rooms and you use the phrase, um, oh, to be a fly on the wall. Or when you watch junior and senior pacing up and down Parliament Hall, and you, I love to know what they're saying. You do get to know. You follow them wherever they go. So the negotiations behind closed doors, you are there. Um, conversation with clients and agents, you are there in court, walking next to them at all points in time. Um, and it's, it's incredible how much you learn um, and learning different styles from different people and all the advice you get, um, not just about being at the bar, but being self-employed, uh, balancing work and family. You, you get the sort of information that can't be taught. Um, it is an incredible experience. And Chris, do you have anything further to add from your experience? I know that you did a, a bit more criminal, I think, than the others. 
I had, a, as I say, a really enjoyable experience deviling. Um, as I say, all of my devil masters I now consider friends for life. Um, my principal devil master, Paul O'Brien QC, um, with him I started off doing a lot of commercial and intellectual property work, which is an area of law which, although I had covered it in my master's degree, I'd never actually even practised it before. So what I found, it, it was really like... Um, you're thrown directly into it and what the agreement I made with Paul was that basically every piece of work he was doing um, I would replicate it so if he was tasked with drafting a summons he would give me the papers I would then draft the summons if he had to prepare written submissions he would give me the papers I would then prepare the submissions and we would then walk up and down Parliament Hall discussing where I went wrong what I did that was good how I could improve upon it and ultimately, like um, Robert and Antonia have said, you, you get to see how a case develops from the very beginning until the very end when you see the final, effectively, when it's in court. Um, I, as Robert has alluded to, had four devil masters. Um, so I did find it very, very interesting exploring several different practice areas. Um, so one day, for example, I would be working in commercial matters. The next day, I would maybe be asked for drafting a personal injury summons or a set of defences. The next day, perhaps, I would be in the High Court watching a trial, and another day I could be doing a petition for judicial review. It really all just depended on the timetable, um, which I created with my Devil Masters, about how much time I'd be spending with each of them. But I, I did um, complete quite a lot of time criminal devilling. Um, I, I know that some people like the approach where they do their criminal devilling towards the end, um, unfortunately, due to COVID-19, I think a lot of people didn't quite have the opportunity to fully engage in criminal law. Um, thankfully, the agreement I'd made with my devil master was to do um, days or weeks here and there whenever um, effectively anything interesting came up. So um, I did have the, the benefit of completing a, quite a really substantial period of criminal devilling, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And it has now... Um, developed into one of my main practice areas. Um, I'm involved in quite a good bit of criminal appeal work as well as some extradition work. So it's um, very interesting having that mixed practice. Then it comes to calling to the bar, which is what everybody aims for at the start of what seems like a very long process. Um, before you get there, you have to decide um, which stable you're going to. How did you each approach that decision? And can you talk us through the process um, from... Uh, starting or being a devil to applying to the um to the various stables and, and what you go through from there i don't know if robert you want to start us off um probably the first thing to say is, is we called uh with one of the largest intakes i think since records began uh with with 26 people um which is nerve-wracking in in respect that you you do wonder am i going to get in somewhere um, but you are advised that you will always get into a stable. Um, the importance of what stable you um, you ultimately get into, I think it seems very important at the time. But when you start practicing, you realize how much work actually comes to you as an individual um, from you, your own relationships and your own experience, as opposed to that stable just because they practice in that particular area. Um, Backed paper, though, is uh, very much a cover letter and a CV uh, is sent to the head of each stable. Um, it's usually uh, um, a QC. Um, it's very much almost like applying for a job. 
explaining why you're interested in those practice areas, why you feel that you would be a good fit to a particular stable, what can you bring to that stable. There is uh, thereafter a period of sifts. Uh, so there is a, a first sift where people get sent out offers. People can then accept or reject, ideally promptly. And then what happens then is the stables regroup and then send out uh, a second um, wave of offers. But ultimately, you will um, go to stables. And that part seems, I think, from speaking to some colleagues, that part was very, very stressful. And I think in hindsight, it probably shouldn't be. Um, so my words of wisdom to those thinking of going to the bar is, by that point, don't worry, you're already in. You've, you've already made it. But if you pass your final exams and you've got through everything, um, which I think is something we haven't actually touched on yet, if you get through that stage, you've already done it. Um, so just from that point, enjoy the ride. And Antonia, how do you go about choosing which stables to apply to? Does Do people apply to all of them? Or do you have to make a um, ranked selection of the stables that you're applying for? How does that work? I think, I think it is personal choice. I think some people apply to quite a few stables. I only applied to, to very few. Um, I think I'd made the decision of where I wanted to go. And I think because I decided that I wanted to be a family lawyer, I think Westwater was a very obvious choice. And um, and I'm very lucky that I got in on the first shift that uh, Rob was speaking about. But I think what really helped me there was I I introduced myself to the clerks. I, I went round to their, their, they've got a little area at the back of the court. And I just thought, you know, go round and they'll know my face when they get my application and just said hello. And just, you know, tried to give them a little bit of information about me. You know, this is what I'm really interested in. And I think this is what I can bring to your stable. And I think that really worked. And I've got a really lovely relationship with my clerks. They're all very nice. And what about yourself, Chris? What was that process like? Um, it's obviously an interesting process because um, certainly um, you're effectively deciding what group of advocates you're joining as well as what... Um, effective kind of broad areas you might end up practicing because some of the stables are very specialized um some of them do pretty much exclusively criminal law some of them do pretty much exclusively personal injury law um, and other stables are more of a mixed stable that offer a bit more in terms of the practice areas so i i did apply to quite a few of the stables because i do have quite a broad areas sorry a broad um practice effectively of civil and criminal law um ultimately i was quite lucky I, I had multiple interviews and what i had to do was effectively see as antonia and robert have said who do you get on with who do you think is offering the best um, base for you to establish your practice and ultimately where you think you're a good fit in terms of what you can bring to the stable and how you would like your own practice to develop um in the end um I received an offer, as I say, from Themis Advocates, um, who I decided were a really good fit for me, given they have a very broad range of practice areas with the various advocates they have. And um, as I say, I really got on with the clerks. And so far, I've really enjoyed my time at the bar. Um, I found that work comes in, like Robert has said, through cases you have worked on, you tend to get repeat instructions if solicitors like you. And ultimately, some other work has come through the stable who have also helped me make contacts. Um, so I think a stable is a very important part. Um, but um, it's not to say that your own efforts don't come into play. I think your practice at the bar very much come down, comes down to how you um, relate with your instructing solicitors and how well they like you effectively. 
Antonia, you've now been in uh, practice for about six months now. Um, how would you describe your first um, few months after having called to the bar? I think it's been really exciting. You never know what's going to drop into your email box. And I've had a really wide variety of instructions. Um, so I do mainly practice in family law, but I have had some personal injury work recently. Although I've had a lot less in court appearances. So the only time I've ever been in court as an advocate has been on the telephone, which has been very strange. <laughs> so instead of wearing my wig and gown, I'm wearing my pyjamas with a, you know, my hair and a ponytail. <laughs> Um, Robert, Chris has alluded to the fact that he, you know, he's managing to get instructions, whether that's through um, his clerk or through his own contacts. How have you found the process of um, coming from a traineeship and trying to build that up to the stage where you're now at? And do you feel like you're in a position where you're getting those instructions through enough to, to keep you going? Um, I think it's been a, it's been an interesting year to go to the bar. Um, it's always good to go to the bar just as um, the legal system has been shut for a number of months. Uh, so that has made it particularly interesting. Um, what I've found is it's a case of uh, waiting for all the buses and then they all come at once. Uh, you can have um, a period of weeks where nothing comes in um, and you have things to do, but you, I've, I've put them to the side and well, I've got plenty of time. And then your inbox is then flooded on one day and you then spend the entire weekend working. So it does, it does teach you a bit of time management. Um, I've been lucky. Uh, I've had a lot of things come in, which is sort of within my remit um, and within my experience and sort of comfort zone. Um, but there's also a lot of things that come into the stable, as, as Chris say, a lot of, uh, sort of general work and very broad work that sometimes you just need to be a little bit bold. And if you're confident that you have the time to learn that particular area um, and it's not particularly time sensitive and you put your name forward, um, conscious in, in the same way as Antonia, not to delve too much, but um, there was uh, one instruction that came around, which was to um, review a decision made um, in terms of a, a license to cull beavers. Nothing to do with my practice areas whatsoever, but I am very passionate on saving the beavers. So I put my name forward. Um, and Chris is in the same boat. If A lot of the things is very wide and very varied and you put your name forward. Um, I've spent a lot of time in the last four weeks working um, as a craft junior, which is an incredible experience um, and a fantastic introduction to high court criminal work. Um, this year, same as Antonius, this is mainly about phone. Um, I think because the courts have been closed and then the civil courts while operating are now operating very exclusively remotely, which I think limits the capacity somewhat. A lot of the work um, I've been doing is written work. So balancing that between uh, a full day in the high court and then trying to balance the written work in the evenings and, and so on around that. But it's been a challenging but a very interesting experience at the same time. What we've also done is we've asked our members if they have any questions that they'd like to put to the panel um, and we've had lots of responses. Um, what I su would suggest is that perhaps um, you just, I don't want to say buzz in when you have an answer, but if you think it's a question that you um, would be well placed to answer, then please just do so. I won't pick and choose unless nobody puts himself forward. Um, the first question we've kind of touched on is um, how do you choose a devil master? I think we've 
kind of covered that but um, more information I think is available on the faculty website and I'm sure um, our guests today would be happy for people to contact them to learn a bit more about the experiences. Um, the second one somebody has asked I feel like I still have lots to learn in the field that I'd want to specialise in should that stop me? Um, I would say no not not in the slightest bit as I say that the faculty devilling experience uh, zero to hero somewhat puts a, a, a dark cast over it but it, but it is almost like that. And they do say right from the word go, it doesn't matter whether you are, uh, you've, you're in your early 20s after doing a bar traineeship. It doesn't matter whether you're in your mid 20s after doing a proper traineeship. It doesn't matter whether you are a solicitor advocate or you've come uh, from being a partner for many years. It really doesn't matter. It, they break you down, not physically, but you start with a clean slate and everybody starts from the foundations and they build you up. And I would say that by the time you come to doing your professional assessments, it really doesn't matter how experienced you were before you started deviling. Everybody is given the same opportunities and the same skills. Um, so I would say no. Um, in terms of practice areas, if it's something you want to do, I, I think Antonia can probably clarify this, but I don't think Antonia had any experience in family whatsoever. That was a a passion developed as she was doing deviling. Um, you shouldn't let a particular practice area hold you back um, moving as you progress through deviling. That's absolutely correct, Robert. I had no family law practice prior to coming to the bar, but I um, I worked on quite a few family law cases during deviling and I felt like I got enough experience to give me a good grounding to work from. I think I would also add to that as well. Um, I think it kind of puts to bed a couple of myths about the bar. Um, the first is that I think it's two very different skill sets between being a solicitor and being an advocate. There is some crossover to a degree, especially with um, you get some solicitors who do a significant amount of court work. Um, but being a solicitor for X number of years does not necessarily um, mean that you're going to have an advantage going to the bar because like Rob says, the first thing you do is you go back to square one you look at how you can develop these skills through a different kind of framework and you ultimately build upon them over the course of your deviling period. Um, the second thing is, of course, that um, while experience is useful, um, when you are deviling, you effectively get the exposure to these areas which you might not have had exposure to in the past. Um, as I say, I trained exclusively in personal injury with some limited debt recovery matters, um, but now Throughout deviling, I had exposure to crime, I had exposure to human rights, I had exposure to um, personal injury defence work, which I had never done before. I had exposure to commercial, to intellectual property, so many areas which before deviling, I would not have known where to start with them. But now I would feel quite comfortable in a lot of these areas taking instructions. So I think it's important, don't let the lack of experience or um, how new you are to the profession act as a barrier. Ultimately, when you come to the faculty, it's back to square one and you develop it over the course of deviling. Perfect. The next question is, how does the business and financial structure of a stable differ from that of a firm? I think that the first thing to remember, um, as I say, even within a stable, um, every advocate is self-employed. Um, so you're you're not uh, an employee of the stable. You are a self-employed, effectively, a legal consultant. That's ultimately what it comes down to. Um, so although um, in a stable you, you do share the administrative support of the clerks, um, it's not really analogous to a firm where 
for example, an associate might delegate tasks down to a trainee or a partner might delegate tasks to an associate. It's much more that everyone else is fully in charge of their own practice. The only thing is the clerks provide the shared administrative support to everyone in their stable. And as I understand it, there's sort of a, a financial contribution rather than the stables paying the advocates. The advocates have a contribution that's deducted by faculty services in the stable. How does that work? Anyway. Well, my, my understanding of it is, um, I mean, the faculty has a service company called Faculty Services Limited, and most advocates subscribe to it. Um, there are a few advocates who don't. But what that effectively means is X amount of money will come off your whatever you earn at the end of your month and go back to effectively pay for the the admin support um, that you're getting from your clerks. Um, as I say, it, it's one of these things, depending on what you bring in, obviously that will dictate what goes back to faculty services. But um, so far, I, I, um, I really enjoy being part of a stable. I can see why for certain advocates it may be beneficial not to be, for example, if they don't need um, the admin support or they don't need the publicity that the stable um, provides. Um, but as I say, though, every advocate that is a member of a stable subscribes to Faculty Services Limited and there will be um, financial consequences to that. Can you still get instructions if you don't have a lot of experience? I think we've kind of covered that one. Um, but do you have, I suppose, any tips to people who are maybe coming without a particularly big network as to how they can work on that for coming to the bar? Um, yeah, there are work that comes to you directly if you know people, but there's also a lot of work that will be sent directly to your stable. But the stable will explain why they need someone, particularly a junior advocate, if they're looking at costs um, or if they're looking at availability as well. The more junior at the bar tend to have a slightly more flexible calendar than those more senior. I think I would echo what Rob said, but I also, I think it's, but I still probably do. I, I think I put that extra wee bit of effort in. You know, I make sure that I get everything turned around as quickly as possible. I make sure I've put so much effort into that bit of work so that they come back to you again. Yeah, I think that... It works for me. It definitely has worked. I think that's pretty much it, is you get a general inquiry. You put your name forward. That particular agent chooses you for whatever reason, gives you a shot or um, for, for whatever reason, they give you a shot and you deliver a fantastic service. You perhaps spend a little bit more time on it than a more senior member of the bar would. You perhaps give them a little bit more. And um, for example, if they ask for a, a piece of advice, you perhaps give them that advice that they've asked for, but then give them a little bit more um, that you don't charge for. Um, you do it perhaps quicker than you may get from more experienced members of the bar. Um, and the idea or the hope is that if you've delivered that quality service, the next time that agent needs an advocate, instead of asking the stable generally, they will ask the stable for you. Um, and once you've built up that relationship, then that is a, a long-standing relationship. And then once you've built up another, 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 and that's how you build your network. I think that um, certainly at the early stages of the bar, one of the best things you can hope for is repeat instructions. And the way to do that is to make yourself likeable and also to make sure that every bit of work you get, you're doing a good job with it. And what I've found is that agents do come back and instruct you time and time again. And as well as that, um, I've personally found that people that I went to university with are now solicitors, uh, people that I've known since before I came to the bar also do give you the chance, they do instruct you. And like Robert also touched on, 
there are other opportunities at the early stages of the bar, like Crown Juniorring, which is a very popular way of getting experience in criminal work. Um, the, the Crown are quite often looking for people to do this role. Effectively, that involves being junior counsel to an advocate deputy and uh, prosecuting a case. So there are all of these opportunities available for junior counsel. Um, I think it really, again, comes down to what you make of it. But ultimately, um, I don't think a lack of experience serves as a barrier of any kind to you at the bar. Um, I certainly came straight out of traineeship and I found that my practice has gradually developed. And at the moment, I'm, I'm very happy with how it's progressing. And I certainly wouldn't, um, I wouldn't go back to being a solicitor. <laughs> I do think that being on the committee for SILA has been a massive bonus. It's been a great way to meet other solicitors, I think to, to have contacts in, at the younger end of the bar as well. Um, so people maybe going forward who will maybe remember my name. I would also say, I mean, I think um, just on the topic of SILA, um, SILA in, in normal times, obviously just now they're doing it virtually, in normal times, the events such as the networking nights, such as the SILA ball, they're fantastic opportunities to network. And I think that really at the early stages of the bar, you need to take every opportunity like that that you can. Um, so I think SILA does play quite a big part and there are a lot of opportunities that they provide where you can really develop your practice. And I should take this opportunity to say that just because you go to the bar doesn't mean you can no longer be a member of the Scottish Young Lawyers Association. You can remain one up to 10 years called. So um, nice shameless plug for S. Wiley there. Next question. What is a work-life balance like compared to working in private practice? Um, I'll maybe take this one. I, I think it's just so much better. I, I've got twins and... Um, I think when you're working in a firm, you're, you're you're restricted. You have to be at your desk in lockdown or you have to be in an office in normal times between a set amount of hours. And at the moment, I dictate my own hours and, and I do work a, a reasonable amount of time each day, but I'm able to decide, OK, I want to take Thursday off. I don't have to run that past anybody. And I'll maybe just work Saturday and Sunday instead. You know, it, it, your complete flexibility. And I think if you've got children, it's it's a dream. I would say that the, the flexibility is one of the, the things which I most enjoy about being an advocate. Um, it, it does let you structure your week exactly the way you want to. If you don't want to work in the mornings, you don't have to, have to work in the mornings. If you don't want to work in the evenings, you don't have to. But ultimately, as I say, any um, diligent advocate does obviously put in the work that is required in any given case. But it does give you that bit of flexibility. Ultimately, your practice is whatever you make of it. Uh, I certainly, um, as you can gather by the, the background here, one of my biggest hobbies is music. I'm currently in my, my music studio room in the flat. And what I've found is that the advocate profession has given me the opportunity to explore that more, just simply because I have more time and more control over the structure of my week. So other hobbies and other fun things you like to do, I think the bar does give you um, a much better opportunity to do that, given the inherent flexibility. Would you say that you find yourself working similar hours to the hours that you put in as trainees, or do you think you work more or less than you did at that time? I find I work a lot more, although I start every morning with a dog walk along the beach and then maybe start my actual working day about half past ten. Um, so, but I definitely put a lot more hours in now than I did in a firm, but just at a more flexible time frame? I tend to, um, I find that I'm more productive in the morning. So I I tend to start work at seven, 
and then I'll finish in the afternoon and have the afternoon off, um, may go somewhere. That's something that you can't do um, if you're not self-employed. You've also got the ability to fundamentally work from home, uh, providing you're not in court or a consultation. Um, for me, that was cutting out at least two and a half to three hours of commuting every single day. Um, so while every day I technically on paper work more, I also have more free time. Um, you, your days are very, very different. Um, it's not Monday, Friday, nine to five, or even Monday, Friday, eight to six. Um, often you will look in your diary for the week ahead and you'll find something in there for Monday morning. Um, that requires preparation on the Sunday. And how does the salary compare? I'm not going to ask you how much you make or um, what your rates are, but I suppose people will be thinking um, if they're comparing going to the bar and being a, a junior or recently called advocate versus being an NQ in your average firm, what sort of expectations can they have? Well, I've never worked as a, an NQ solicitor because, uh, like like Rob and as I say, like Tony, we 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 all went to the bar either relatively early stages or, or through a in Antonia's case a bar traineeship. But um, what I can say is that I'm certainly earning earning more than I was as a trainee solicitor. Um, I can't compare that to being an NQ. I've never been an NQ, but I'm perfectly comfortable with what I'm earning, and it is definitely more than a trainee solicitor. So I'm very happy with that. I think I think ultimately, um, taking a very broad brush approach, there is um, a higher earning potential at the bar than there is um, as a solicitor. Um, but there are certain perks, obviously, with being employed, such as pension and benefits and things that you don't get. Um, in terms of salary, the work that you do, you earn the money for. Um, so if you are charging £800 for a piece of work, that, that's your £800. As a, as a solicitor, what you're charging on an hourly basis uh, to the client is not necessarily what's going to end up in your bank by the end of the month. Um, but on the same side of things, particularly at the, as we've said earlier, if you at the early stages of the bar, you put a lot of time and effort into pieces of work to build up good relationships, you may find that you've far exceeded um, the, the the amount of time that you would that you are charging for a piece of work just because you want that piece of work to be a very very high standard um and then obviously you don't get paid for annual leave so there are pros and cons i think the bar has a far higher earning potential but ultimately it, it's entirely up to you how much you want to work if you've got a family and you don't want to be working seven days a week um then potentially yes you are earning less but then is spending time with the family far more valuable if you are somebody who just wants to work seven days a week then yes you probably will be earning a lot of money perfect and um, the next question is how do you best prepare for the exams and by that i think they're meaning the pre-deviling exams study study yes <laughs> um, I, I think the thing is really just to um to study as much as you can um the um as i say the it really comes down to, as I say, you, the, the exams which everyone requires to sit are evidence and practice and procedure. Um, you really just need to know what they're looking for on the basis of the past papers which you will get, know what they're looking for on the basis of the reading materials they advise you to consult, 
and ultimately um, just become familiar with that and practice your answers, practice doing it under time constraints because time is your biggest enemy in that exam. I'm sure everyone here will agree with that. The next question is, and I'm sure this will be a fairly short answer, do you have to do a traineeship first? Of some form, yes. Yeah, and I think um, just to add to the, the bar traineeship information that I've already shared with you, um, the bar traineeship isn't overseen by the Law Society. You need to go to faculty first before you go to a law firm and you need to ask faculty if they're willing to accept the traineeship that you put forward. So it's it's a bit of a, a process that you need to go through and you will need to make representations about that. And they need to okay the firm that you choose and what you'll be covering during your traineeship as, as well. Um, the next question is, what are the fees? I think uh, probably there are fees in terms of when you matriculate and you put up your petition. Um, Chris, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? I, th- I can imagine they change every year, but roughly what exactly the fees are for, if not the costs of them? Well, I recall there there were fees from quite early on. Um, there was a fee involved with matriculation, I'm pretty sure. There was a fee involved with the petition, which you had to lodge with the court of session. Um, you then had fees in respect of the examinations that you had to sit. Um, I, I cannot, I'm afraid, remember exactly what the fees were, but I, th- I think they are all in the, the regulations as to entrance. Um, but um, it, it is quite an investment going through the matriculation process and ultimately setting the exams. So uh, obviously one of the big things about coming to the bar is to make sure that you do have financial arrangements in place to fund it. Um, because before you even start to think about the fact that it's a nine-month pupillage, um, once you um, finish the exams, etc., you ultimately do have to fund quite a lot of the um, the paperwork, etc., before that. And, you know, most people, I imagine, who are listening to this um, and thinking about a career at the bar know that the nine months that you spend devilling is unpaid, you're, un- you're not employed by anyone, you're having to fund that lifestyle yourself. Um, in addition to that, as I understand it, there are fees... When you call, whether that's in terms of, of the fees that you pay to faculty and um, to the courts, but also you've got your wig and your gown. And I take it there are fees for the books and things even that you have to buy for your exam that perhaps people don't necessarily factor in when they're thinking about their outgoings for the career change. There are there are a lot, uh, as Chris said, it, it is an investment. Um, the faculty have made a number of bursaries available and they go there is a lot of assistance given to encourage people from all walks of life to go to the bar. Um, ultimately, I think it is very much, um, my own personal view is it's it's up to that individual. If you want to go to the bar, you, you will make it work. You will find the money, you will save up, and you will make it work. Um, you do have matriculation fees. Uh, not I, I could run through a list with no intention of putting the fear into anyone but you, you do have matriculation fees um the annotated rules are certainly uh, not cheap uh you've investment in technology whether that be ipads uh, new laptops um business dress uh which you are um you may be from a firm that has sort of casual fridays unfortunately you don't get that while deviling so business dress every single day You've got the exam fees, uh, professional indemnity insurance, uh, the wig ain't cheap. Uh, you've also got a gown, an evening coat with tails if, uh, if you're a gent, a bow tie, collarless shirts, and the list does go on. Um, and as Chris said, you aren't being paid 
so my big advice would be to start saving early. Um, even if it's just a small amount, even a trainee ship is difficult to save anything, but just save something and just start building up that savings pot. You probably don't want to just cover your 12 months of deviling uh, as a minimum. Uh, I think I aimed for between 12 and 15 months of earning nothing. Um, thankfully, that hasn't been the case, but it is uh, very comfortable when you call to the bar to know that your bills for the rest of the year are already paid. It takes the pressure off you. Why are there no visible LGBT sort of role models at the faculty? And I suppose expanding on that myself, just generally people perhaps from ethnic minorities and other minority groups um, are less visible at the bar. Why do you think that is? I, I really don't know. Um, and it, the same argument is made for the judiciary. I, I, I really have no idea. Um, there is no bar to entry. Uh, the faculty may, may a long, long time ago, have been um, for very for men uh, from very rich families, um, from prep schools. It, it may well have been that, but that was a long, long time ago. Um, sex, gender, sexual orientation, race, uh, religious beliefs, it has no effect whatsoever. When you go to the bar, you are a professional person, irrespective of all of those variables. It really makes no difference whatsoever. Um, for the life of me, I've, I've no idea why the bar is, is not more diverse, but that is something that the bar is, the Scottish bar certainly is striving to be. I don't think we have any other questions. Um, does anybody have anything that they, I suppose, as a final tee up, any tips that they would give to somebody or thinking junior lawyers here, um, whether that's students, trainees or recently, uh, recently qualified solicitors, any tips that you would give them if they're considering a career at the bar? I would say um, just don't be afraid to do it. Don't be afraid to go to the bar. Um, there are a lot of myths out there. People saying you won't get instructions, you won't get paid, um, you've not got enough experience, you need to be a solicitor for X amount of years before you go to the bar. Don't listen to that. If you want to go to the bar, go to the bar. That is my advice. I think reach out to people. Reach out to people who are involved in chats like this and give us a call or, you know, send us an email and ask us to go for a coffee like Rob suggested earlier. I think I've never met anyone at the bar that would turn down an opportunity for a coffee. Even if you are in a traineeship rank, you get that into your mind, get into the right mindset and don't just do what people are asking you to do. You're in court. Take ownership of the written work. Take ownership of your oral advocacy. Um, independent study and I'll echo with, with both Antonio and Chris and um, get in touch with people. I'm sure everyone listening to this has come away with certainly new things that they didn't know before. Um, I'm sure also that our panel of guests would be happy to take questions sent to them privately, LinkedIn um, or by email if any of our listeners have them. So all it leaves me to do yeah. is to say thank you to each of you very much for coming on the podcast and hopefully I look forward to those catch-ups over tea and coffee once we're a little bit closer back to normality. Thank you, Ayla. Thank you. Thank you very much.